Well, good morning. You sound so good, church, singing praises to our great God. If you are a guest with us today, my name is Jordan Johnson. I have the joy of serving as our lead pastor and one of our elders here at PVC. If you are a guest with us, you picked a great Sunday because we are in the middle of a verse-by-verse series through the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bible, Nehemiah chapter 6, if you want to get that out, and we're going to work ourselves by God's grace through the 19 verses preserved for us by the Holy Spirit with the theme of opposing opposition. Eugene Peterson has well said that Christian discipleship is long obedience in the same direction. Christian discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. And what we have seen in the first five chapters of Nehemiah is we have seen a brother named Nehemiah with a long obedience in the same direction, the direction that God had burdened him with to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem after they have been down for, watch this now, 141 years. And so far, Nehemiah has demonstrated for us what it looks like to resolve in the midst of opposition. Today, what God is going to teach you and teach me, and the Spirit of God, I believe, is going to work in our lives, is how do we oppose opposition in our own lives, when you and I are seeking to do something for the glory of God and the good of people, and you began to receive opposition. If you have an outline, I hope you got a bulletin on the way in, because there's an outline there we're going to walk through, and I think you'll get a lot more out of this sermon if you'll get a pen out, and you'll um, not just agree, but you'll engage the biblical text, you'll write some things down, because on the back of there, we have our connect groups, and those are launched, those eight uh, initial groups, and they're going to discuss these and some more questions. And so I, I pray that what God is doing in your life here at Pleasant Valley Church in this season, that He is giving you greater hunger and greater thirst for righteousness. There is extemporaneous clapping and rejoicing and great singing in our midst, and my prayer is, is the reason that is the case is not because of me or because of anybody else, but because God is stoking the fire in your heart for greater righteousness and a love and an adoration for all that He is that just can't contain itself by just kind of humming along, kind of swaying a little bit, but that He is stoking the fire inside of you to sing and praise and allow the goodness and the grace of all that He is in your life to flow out of you in ceaseless praise. If you love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, would you affirm that by saying amen? amen? Let's go to Him in prayer right now. Let's ask Him to give us the power to glean what He has for us in this text. Our Father, we recognize the grass withers, the flower fades, but Your Word will endure forever. We believe, Father, that You are infinitely wise infinitely good. For those reasons, you are our highest good. God, you are our greatest joy. We look around and we see so much that is wrong, and yet you're so good. 
And often the wrong seems insurmountable. Father, in that moment we realize our own vulnerability, our own susceptibility to the tidal wave of opposition that we are going to face. Jesus, you told us, if they hated me, they will hate you as well. So, Father, we thank you for the grace that is able to love in the midst of being opposed. I pray, God, that today that you would come and minister to us. Feed us, God. We are your hungry children. We're hungry. We've spent time in your word this week. We've spent time disciplining ourselves daily in prayer, practicing other spiritual disciplines, and now, God, you want to use the means of grace of the preached word. So, Holy Spirit, would you give us now your glasses, your spectacles to behold wonderful things from Nehemiah chapter 6. For your glory, God, for our good, and everybody said. Some of you are probably aware that in a couple of weeks, October 31st, we will celebrate as Protestants the Reformation. If you're not as familiar, 506 years ago, God gave a man, a German monk named Martin Luther, a great burden to nail his 95 theses, not reses, 95 theses to the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, as he began to oppose and reform the leading belief in the church at that time that salvation was achieved by good works rather than received by grace through faith. And he was opposed. He was greatly opposed. And God used Luther to restore the gospel back to the Christian church and holistically take the Word of God and put it back at the centerpiece of the people of God, namely when she gathered. This is when the pulpit became not on the right side, but it began to move in the middle of the public gathering. Because Luther believed that the Word of God should be what we are centered around. There's, there's no doubt that when this building itself was erected and constructed, that the ones that built this building most likely had in their mind, we want this fan shape because there's a picture of we all are all singing and we're hearing and we're amening, but we're doing it centered around the Word of God. And God used Luther, friends, 506 years ago to really a spark for the glory of God and the reformation of that which had been deformed when it came to what was being taught in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And Luther being opposed, he at one time dressed up as a woman because he was trying to disguise himself from those who were seeking to take his life as he hid in the Varberg Castle. At another time, he grew out this, I mean, just beautiful, massive beard twice. 
Because, again, he's trying to disguise himself. He should have kept it. He looked very handsome, by the way. He should have kept that big beard, but he cut it off. And he did that because, again, he's trying to escape from those who are seeking to take his life. So we could say about Luther, Luther had his warts like we all do. But Luther was a man on the run for the glory of God. And this is why we call Luther the great reformer. Because God used his faithfulness, the burden, the passionate pursuit of the heart of Luther was the glory of God and the Word of God being revered in a way in which would bring glory to God, but would actually serve and feed the people of God, the primary source of nutrition that is going to stimulate and stabilize you, which is the 66 books that we have in our Old and New Testament. Now, I bring up Luther because his passionate pursuit was God had a way that he formed the church. He formed that which is true. Men came and deformed it, and Luther came by God's grace and reformed it. Not to something new, but reform it back to which that, God said, was the correct way of relating to him. Now, in Nehemiah 6, we see another reformer, a man that God had put on his heart, a passionate pursuit to reform that which had been deformed, And if you're new to our study, the narrative of Nehemiah takes place 400 years before the birth of Christ. God's people in Nehemiah have re-entered Jerusalem, and now Nehemiah is going to rebuild the walls in the first six chapters, and then the rest of the book is about restoring the hearts of the people of God back to her God. God used a man named Ezra to get the temple rebuilt. Now the walls need to be rebuilt, and Nehemiah is God's man for the hour. In Nehemiah 5 last week, we saw there's internal conflict in the camp because the religious elite were opposing and in many ways oppressing the poor among them. And now the opposition gets really hot, friends. Because the opposition now is going squarely at the shoulders. Nehemiah was a marked man, okay? Nehemiah was a marked man by the enemy, and you're going to see it played out today. And behind all of these assaults is the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan have always been in rival. And the people of God are caught up in the middle. And Nehemiah is caught in the middle of this cosmic battle that's going on in the spiritual. And so the question I bring to you from Nehemiah 6 is how do we oppose opposition and press on in faithfulness to our God in spite of the myriad of schemes that the devil's going to put forth in your life, and he's going to do it sometimes through people that you thought would never oppose the things of God. Now, let me show you this before we jump in this text. There is an underlying theme that these enemies have. There's an underlying theme to these tactics that they're about to do. In verse 9, verse 13, verse 14, verse 19, what they are trying to do to Nehemiah is cripple him in fear. They're trying to frighten him. They want to intimidate him. And the question is, how is Nehemiah going to oppose these fear tactics? Well, very, very simply, 
Nehemiah is going to demonstrate he feared God more than he feared them. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 10. Don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear those who can put body and soul in hell. If you have, friend, watch this now, if you have a right view of God, if you learn to fear God, then you'll learn how to have proper perspective of all the lesser fears that are in your life. Remember back in chapter 1, Nehemiah gave God this title. He said, God, the great and awesome God. That, that's Nehemiah's theology, great and awesome God. In Nehemiah 6, you're going to see he really believes that. Some people have a good theology, they just don't believe it. Some people believe the right things about God, but they just don't really walk in it. They can pass a theological test, but when you're around them, you don't sense that they're operating by the enabling power of the Spirit of God, although they'll amen that which is true all day long. Nehemiah is not that way. Nehemiah is not cold orthodoxy. He doesn't just believe the right thing. He believes the right thing. His head is right, and his heart is now set ablaze for the glory and the grandeur of God. And I want to tell you this. If you're in this room, you can have right theology and be wrong practically. You, there, there are a lot of people in the Christian church. They're normally in the circles I run in, okay, that are theologically correct but practically heretics. Because they're not living that which they believe and said is true. And it is true, but if you looked at their life, you don't see it. That's not Nehemiah. And may it not be you. May it not be me. Dear friends, we can learn a lot. If we can learn a lot from Nehemiah's understanding of the fear of God. I want to tell you this, all right? If you'll learn to fear God, you can press through anything. If you will learn to fear God properly, you can press through the most hellacious circumstances. And I think the Christian church is full of those who have. And this is John Newton's great hymn, is it not? Amazing grace. Remember this line? Grace that taught my heart to fear. See, God's grace teaches you what to fear. God's grace teaches you, more importantly, who to fear. But listen, and grace my fears relieves. See, it's the same grace of God that shows you who to fear, and it's the same grace of God that gives you relief from other fears. To fear God for the Christian, watch this now, is to fear displeasing Him in any way. That's what it means to fear God. To fear God is, I am scared to death that I'm going to displease God. That's what it means to fear God. Four things here I want you to see in this text. Four things in your outline there. Four Ds. There are four tactics the enemy, Satan, is going to use through the schemes of these opposing governors. Notice deception. They're going to try to deceive Nehemiah in verses 1 to 3. Would you say the word deception? Say it louder for those in the back. Would you say deception? deception? Notice, now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies, they heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set the doors in the gate. So they've almost got the wall completed. And the closer they get to the finish line, watch this now, the fiercer the opposition is going to get. Notice too, Sanballat and Geshem, 
sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together. Now remember, Sambalot and Geshem are governors of rivaling nations that do not like the fact that the people of God had come back to their land and rebuilt the city. They're not excited about that. That's who those, these, these uh, smooth Sambalot, I call him, and, and uh, gorgeous Geshem. I, I don't know. But come and let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. Now, this is a political move. It had to be very tempting for Nehemiah to go 20 miles north where Ono is. Ono is a very plush place geographically. It was beautiful. It was comfortable. It's where people vacation. These were vacation homes, if you will. Ono was a really good place to go. And think about from a practical level. When you've been working as hard as Nehemiah has with all the opposition he has been receiving, wouldn't it be nice to go up there and hang out on the plush green vacation area for a little while and get a little bit of break from all the rubble of the city? And by the way, he would go up there and probably get to befriend Sambalot and get to befriend Geshem, and he would politically get on their good side, and he maybe could use that time to butter them up a bit. But notice Nehemiah's discernment. But they intended to do me harm. Now, this is Proverbs 1 7. Remember Proverbs 1 7? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of. This is wisdom. This is discernment. And Nehemiah says, oh no, to oh no. And I sent messengers to them, verse 3. Now, this will be a dangerous job. Nehemiah said, I'm going to send messengers to go tell these two thugs that I'm not coming. Now, that would be a pretty dangerous job. If you have to go tell somebody who wants to hurt your boss, he's not coming. That would be a pretty dangerous job. But notice, this is what you say. Go tell them this. Go tell them. I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Now, what is Nehemiah doing here? Well, he's staying focused. And my friends, we must do the same. Titus 2 says, grace teaches us, as we read, as John read for us, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. By saying yes to God, you will say no to temptation to do that which offends God. And Nehemiah is no puppet of these people. These people have a plan for Nehemiah's life. But Nehemiah says, I'm not listening to you. Nehemiah is living for the applause of God. He is not living for the applause of people. Nehemiah is living out of conviction. God has put something on his heart, and he says, "Why you go tell those guys, why should I get down off what God has called me to do to come to you? Jesus had to do this. Mark chapter 1, the disciples come to him. Jesus, where are you at? The whole town's looking for you. They came to get a miracle. They came to get you to do the unthinkable in their lives. And this is what Jesus says. Let's go to a different, let's go to the next town so that I can go and preach that which I was called to do. Jesus stayed focused on the mission of God. Hear me, teenagers. Hear me, young adults. Hear me, old adults. Hear me, all of us. This is the question you have to ask yourself every single day. Will I cave into peer pressure? 
Or will I live with resolve to please God no matter who it offends? If you offend God, it does not matter who you please. If you offend, if you please God, it doesn't matter who you offend. They'll get over it. But God has given you and me very clear directives that you and I have to live in such a way that we say, oh no, to all the oh no's in our lives. And fearing God will give you the ability to do that. When you fear God, He will give you discernment to sort through deception, even when it's done in churches, even when it's done by pastors, even when it's done by people who have a Bible under their arm. God will give you discernment to sift through the deception as they're trying to trip you up in the good work that God has called you and us to do. So stay focused. Second of all, defamation. Not only do they want to deceive him, they want to defame him. Notice verse 4. And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. Come to Ono. Oh no. 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 In the same way, for the fifth time, now notice resolve. See, some people think if they keep pressuring you to do that which you know is wrong, they'll finally get you. That's why they won't go away. That's why they keep coming after you. That's why they keep trying to weaken you down. And that's what these cats are doing. And you know what Nehemiah says? No, I'm staying the course. Notice, they sent his servant to me with an open letter. In it is written this, verse 6, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that's why you're building a wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. Now that sounds so official, does it not? But these folks have no source for this information. Um, that Nehemiah is somehow doing this because he has some motive to be the king and to take over the area. This is a lie. We would call this a smear campaign. This is straight off of in our day of, of two political individuals who run ads on TV and spend millions of dollars making up lies about the opponent so they can get the vote. This is a smear campaign. And Nehemiah is on to it. Notice seven. And notice what they say. And you have also set up prophets. So you got a staff. You got a staff of people that you're putting together to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Now, more threats. If, if you don't come to Ono, we're going to tell the king. See, these guys are relentless. Now, notice Nehemiah's response in verse 8. Then I sent to him saying, no such thing. As you say, have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Now, when people defame your character, there is really nothing you can do about it. And some of us need to ask God for a little bit thicker skin, okay? Some of us need to ask God for a little bit thicker skin. Because anytime somebody says something about us and slanders us, we just cripple in defeat. And you're going to have to learn to be okay with people making up lies about you and slandering you and speaking all kinds of things against your character that you know before God and people that really know you 
They're lying. It's not true. If you're going to do a great work for the king and his kingdom, then you're going to have to expect people to oppose you and normally using their tongue to try to defame your character. And Nehemiah, notice what he does. He denies it. He says, I'm not getting caught up in your lies. I'm not getting caught up in the gossip. I'm not going back and forth with you. You give a fool an ear, then you somehow you're going to give him credibility. So just let him do his thing. Sort of like Alka-Seltzer, he'll finally, she'll finally fizz out. Just walk away. Notice verse 9. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will be done. But now, watch this. Oh God, strengthen my hands. Notice what Nehemiah does. He diametrically denies that these things are true, and he prays. So what do you do when someone slanders you? Well, you deny it categorically. And you pray, you pray for God to strengthen your hands. Now, I want you to notice this. Nehemiah does not ask God to change the situation. He doesn't ask God to change the situation. Rather, he says, God, strengthen me. God doesn't always remove the pain. It is not always his will for you to get out of the pain. Sometimes, for the glory of his great name and for your good, his will is for you to be in the pain, for you to be in the pressure cooker, for you to be in that environment. Paul said, 2 Corinthians 12, I asked God three times to take it away. You know what God said? No, no, and no. But God said, I'll give you something better. I'll give you my grace. I'll give you my ability to stay the course. And I would submit to you, friends, this is the everyday prayer of the Christian. You can do it in your car. You can do it on the job. You can do it in the kitchen. You can do it attending school. And you teenagers, you're caught up in the pressure cooker of all kinds of temptation. Listen, God will strengthen you for the battle. This is what the early church prayed. Acts chapter 4. They're being opposed. They're being persecuted. They don't make picket signs. They don't ask God to stop them. This is what they do. God, make us bold. That's different, friends. That's different. God, make us bold. Don't change us. God, many times, does not want to change your situation. He wants to use your situation to change you, to help you develop and get some meat on your bones. And God knows we all need to grow up. And so God's going to use the pressure cooker to grow us. Don't run from the pain. Ask God for grace to strengthen your hands, to stay the course. And evidently, God listened to Nehemiah's prayer here because, friends, Nehemiah is going to go on here to stay the course. Friends, I just want to encourage us. Let's pray like Nehemiah. Constant communion with God. You can never let your guard down. You can never let your guard down. I can tell you this. The times where Jordan is tempted the most is when we go on vacation. When I get around, when I get off of the normal path and the normal rhythms of life, this is where the enemy becomes and bring up things I thought that I had dealt with. So friend, don't ever think because you're physically on vacation that you spiritually get to go on vacation. You never get a moment off because the enemy is always coming at the people of God. See, Nehemiah is bold, friends, but please remember this. His source of strength is God. 
May our strength be in God too. God, strengthen our hands. Well, the opposition intensifies. Deception, defamation, notice the third D, destruction. They're going for the neck of Nehemiah. Now, verse 10, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Methatabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Now, why does Shemaiah want him to go into the temple? Well, you know why? Because Nehemiah is not allowed in the temple. Not only if Nehemiah goes in the temple, would he be diverted from God's plan for his life, but he would also be disobeying Scripture. So they want to get him to go in the temple because they want to discredit him. They want to mar his reputation and say, look, he broke the law of God. So how does Nehemiah respond? 11, but I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live. I will not go in. See, God is giving Nehemiah strength to believe Scripture. Friends, there are so many voices in your life that are trying to get you to believe them. And what you've got to ask God to do is give you the grace every single day to bury yourself in this book where the voice of Scripture will be so loud that it will drown out all these other little voices that want to get you off track. And Nehemiah is getting strength from God to stay the course. Notice 12, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him more discernment. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way. And sin, notice sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Now this is what Nehemiah fears. This is the fear of God, friends. Nehemiah fears sinning more than he fears them. And my friends, when when you care more about offending God than offending anybody else, let me tell you something, God is strengthening you. He, he, is pat, he, he, is, he is putting meat in, on your spiritual bones. This is what Nehemiah fears. Nehemiah will not violate Scripture. By contrast, I think about 2 Chronicles 26. King Uzziah, remember that king? He had no business going in the temple. And 2 Chronicles 26, 16, very sobering verse. It says, and I quote, When Uzziah was strong, he grew proud. He went into the temple, he burned incense, and you know what God did? He struck him with leprosy. Nehemiah says, no, this is God's truth. I'm standing on God's truth. There's a great lesson here. When someone comes to you claiming to speak on behalf of God, you have to test them through the truth of Scripture. And if what they say is discrediting or disagreeing with the written word of God that I don't know who they heard from, but it's not God. And Nehemiah says, you can claim to give your prophecies all day long, but I know the Torah. I know the law. I know what it says about those who can go in the temple and those who cannot. But notice Nehemiah thwarts it. Notice he does it with more prayer. 14, remember Tobiah and Sambalot, oh my God. According to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So God, take care of them, will you? 
This is Nehemiah saying, God, vengeance is yours. Now, we've already seen Nehemiah is doing this for the glory of God, friends. Nehemiah is not building these walls because he likes construction or because he wants recognition. But the only reason Nehemiah, I mean, the only reason, the, the only, absolute only reason Nehemiah is going through all of this hell on earth is because God's glory is at stake. And he is very concerned about the reputation of God in Jerusalem. And the enemies of God, they have a word, but they don't have the last word. And so they seek to deceive him, to defame him, to destroy him. Finally, notice their determination. They are determined. This final scheme it doesn't come from without. It comes from within the people of God again. And I want you to notice something about the enemy here. He never stops. So the wall was finished, 15, on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, notice the enemies are still around. All the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So they realized this wall being built in 52 days, God must be on their side. Now notice, they all try to make Nehemiah afraid. And because, God, because Nehemiah feared God more than he feared them, God has used Nehemiah's obedience to actually make the enemies of God fear God. So don't ever think that because you stay the course, that God is not using that to give a greater vision of who he is to people who are watching the entire incident. Notice 17, moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. Notice it just keeps coming. And Tobiah's letters came to them. For many, 18, in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. So what happens here is Tobiah is linked to the wealthy. In Jerusalem, financially, maritally. And he's going to seek to use those relationships in the Israeli camp to shut the work down. Notice 19. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters, notice, to make me afraid. Now, what we'll see next week is this doesn't work. Because chapter 7 and 8, what we're going to do next week, chapter 7 is the Jerusalem phone book. It is all the Jews that are going to repopulate Jerusalem. Many, many names in there. Chapter 8 is my favorite chapter in Nehemiah. It's going to be beautiful. We're going to walk through that. I can't wait. But the main thing I want you to see is they tried to deceive him. They tried to defame him. They tried to destroy him. And they were determined to do it. And because God strengthened his hands, he said, oh no, to oh no, and he stood the course. Now, as we close, let me give you four quick points to summarize chapter 1 through 6. Because chapter 1 through 6, that's the first half of Nehemiah. Chapter 7 to 13 is the second half. So we're completing half the book today. And there's four quick things I just want to say to you about the first six chapters. What are, what are four high-level points about Nehemiah 1 to 6? Number one, opposition is inevitable. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. 
Ephesians 6, 1 Peter 5, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So if you're going to do anything for the glory of God, anything for the good of people, don't expect it to go just real easy. Opposition, inevitable. Second of all, sacrifice is inescapable. This is hard work, friends. These walls weren't going to build themselves. These conversations were not going to be had. Uh, Nehemiah could not go into autopilot. He had to work hard, but with the, with the grace that God was giving him. These people are all in. They're all in. And any leader knows this. Any leader, when you put your skin in the game, you put your dollars in the game, you put all that you are, sacrifice, it is inevitable. Third of all, teamwork, teamwork is invaluable. Teamwork is invaluable. Having a dedicated team is invaluable. That's the church today, by the way. We all have access to God. There's one mediator between us and God, the Lord Jesus. And so, by the Spirit, we've got to find our place to serve on the wall. If you're a member here at Pleasant Valley Church, well, there's a wall God's building here. And you've got a part to play on the wall. God's gifted you by His Spirit. He's given you gifts to use to help this wall be everything God desired it to be. Teamwork is invaluable. It's not a one-man show. We're elder-led, myself, David, and Doug, but it's not a three-man show. It's not a five-man show. It's about all 150 so out of us members here taking the grace that God has given us, the gifting He's given us, and get on the wall and get to work. If you're in this room and you're looking for a church home and you think that you're going to find the perfect church home, don't join it if you find it because you're going to ruin it. Because you are not perfect. And it won't take long for them to figure out you're not perfect. So you need to go somewhere where the Word of God is taught, where on paper they're theologically accurate, where they truly live out their theology and get a paddle and get to rowing for the glory of God and the good of that wall in that place. Because teamwork is invaluable. Finally, God, this is most important, from Nehemiah 1 to 6, God is immutable. Immutable. It's a $5,000 theological word that just simply means God won't change. God is immutable. He will not change. Nehemiah had a correct view of God, which forced him to depend on the most dependable person in his life, which was God himself. And because he did that, God strengthened his hands to move forward in the work. Over the first six chapters of Nehemiah, you could write the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. God promised, or as early as Genesis 3.15, that one will come from the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. And friends, in due time, 400 years later from this narrative, God will come in the flesh. And he will come from the very Jewish people that God used Nehemiah to preserve. And from day one, Jesus was opposed, was he not? Herod wanted to kill him before he was ever born. His family thought he was crazy. His enemy said, you're of the devil. They openly slandered him. They trumped Jesus up on seven charges that were not true. He was betrayed in his hardest moment by his closest friends. And ultimately, they pinned him like a poster on a Roman cross. And it was all not true. The closer Jesus got to the finish line, just like Nehemiah, the greater the fears of opposition came. But friends, aren't you glad Jesus stayed the course? He finished the mission. He conquered death. He rose from the dead. And by doing that, he conquered your greatest enemy. 
death. And because Jesus has removed your greatest fear, you can look at all the lesser fears in your life like flea bites. My friend, let me ask you this. How are you going to beat death? How how are you going to beat death? You're going to die, bro. You're going to die, sister. Like, you can drink your greens, and you can take your $78 protein, and you can eat really nutritious, and you can work out. You should do all those things. But you're dying right now. Every, every time you look in the mirror, you should think, I'm dying. Hello. And one day it's going to catch up to you. And the question is, what are you going to do about it? Because you're going to die. Well, friends, the only way to deal with it is to look to the only one who beat death. By trusting the Savior. This Jesus, who lived a perfect life in our place. This Jesus who endured opposition. This Jesus who endured the wrath of God for his people. This Jesus who right now is seated at the right hand of God the Father. This Jesus is who we look to today. This Jesus is where we find strength to keep on keeping on when it makes all sense to just quit and go home because this Jesus will empower you with his spirit. This Jesus will carry you home. This Jesus will give you what you need to do everything he's called you to do. And this Jesus will one day welcome you into his eternal presence. This Jesus is worth following. Amen. So If you find yourself weary today in the work, weary as a mom, weary as a dad, weary as a grandma or grandpa, weary as a worker, weary as a single parent, weary as someone who's trying to walk in sexual purity and you live in a culture that is hypersexual, if that's you, then listen to the author of Hebrews 12.3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Friends, consider Jesus, our great king. Receive his great grace, and you will learn to fear him above all other fears, even when they try to deceive you, try to defame you, try to destroy you, and they are determined to do so. God will strengthen your hands. Our Father, we bless you today. We love you. We thank you for first loving us. We thank you for sending Jesus, our promised Savior King, who lived for us, died for us, rose for us, will return for us. Holy Spirit, grant us resolve to not fear the schemes of the devil May we live with a proper view, Jesus, that you are King of kings, that you are Lord of lords, that we would say, if God be for us, who can be against us? We know this is true because you put forth your Son. Oh, Father, thank you for loving us, your children. Grant us fresh strength today. If you feel so led there where you're at in your seat, would you just put your hands out in front of you? Just put your hands out in front of you. And would you just say, God, strengthen my hands for the work you've called me to do. 
Help me to look to you, Jesus, when I'm weary, when I'm tired. Help me depend upon the Spirit of God. Help me to decrease. Lord Jesus, help you to increase. Lord, strengthen our hands as a body of believers here at Pleasant Valley Church. God, you've got a lot of good work for us to do. There's opposition, Lord, that has come and is coming. And if we're going to stay the course, Lord, if we're going to not devour each other, we're going to love each other, and we're going to continue to pull for each other and carry each other's burdens in this work and do the job that you called us to do, Lord, that is hard work. And we're grateful, Lord, that we got a team of brothers and sisters that we can lock shields with together. So we love you, Lord. Strengthen our hands, and may we resolve today this week, this day, right now to do it all in light of your faithfulness for great is thy faithfulness. We pray it all in Jesus' name as we stand to our feet. Friends, let's respond passionately to the faithfulness of our God.